This is episode number 49 with endurance athlete and founder and CEO of the nonprofit Running Brook, Brooke Sidner Curran. Hey everyone, and welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. Today I bring you a type A badass woman who has run a marathon in all 50 states and on all seven continents. In this episode, she talks about her marathon that she ran in Antarctica, the one that she ran on the Great Wall of China, and what the hardest aspects of those races were. Brooke also founded her own foundation called Running Brooke. Running Brooke is dedicated to getting children in Alexandria, Virginia, physically active to spark happier, healthier, and learning-ready students. And soon she wants to expand this across the United States. If you want to learn more about this organization, you can go to runningbrook.org. But wait, her story doesn't even stop there. Brooke went out training one day back in March of 2018 and suffered a brain aneurysm that would be what she calls the best worst thing that ever happened to her. In this episode, Brooke talks about what sparked her to create her own foundation. She talks about how running gave her meaning in life, about how her perspective on her own life has greatly changed after her brain aneurysm and so much more. This is such an inspiring story with some great learning lessons that I can't wait for y'all to hear. If you enjoy this episode, share it with a friend. Share it with someone in your life who is a big runner, who is maybe thinking of starting their own nonprofit, or just someone who would benefit from having some inspiration in their life. And luckily, the Apple Podcast app and Spotify make it super easy to share via text message if you'd like to. Feel free to give a quick rating and review at the end of the show. If you're on the Apple Podcast app, all you've got to do is scroll to the bottom and click write a review. Let me know what your favorite takeaway or your favorite part about Brooke and about her learning lessons and in her experiences are. That's going to be one of the best ways that you can help support the show, help it grow, and ensure that I can continue to get it in more ears and bring great guests on. For this week's review of the week, I want to thank JMCNK5 for sharing the following review. Really enjoyed hearing Derek's inspirational story and his passion for his work. Loved Chris McChesney's approach to leadership and the idea of results before engagement. I had never really thought of it like this before, but in all areas of life, results are the motivating force which make us engaged in the process. Nick did a great job relating to Chris and his topic. I thoroughly enjoyed their inspiring conversation. Guys, I really love it when people recognize specific guests and specific takeaways from their episodes. That's why I picked this one. It lets me know that they get specific value from it and can now start implementing something into their own life to help them get closer to the best version of themselves. So keep it up, guys. But for now, let's get into the episode. It's that time again. It's time to work on becoming closer to the best version of yourself today with the inspiring Brooke Sidner Curran. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to Nick Carrier's Best You Podcast. I am stoked about today's interview. I have uh, a marathon runner and ultra racer, uh, Brooke Curran, with me today. And Brooke has her own foundation called Running Brooke, um, which they help uh, kids in Alexandria, Virginia, basically, or they educate teachers, right, in Alexandria, Virginia, how to get kids more active in school and keep them moving and everything like that. So an awesome foundation. But Brooke has one heck of a story. She has run a marathon in all 50 states, a marathon on all seven continents, which is just absolutely nuts. So I'm so stoked to get into that. But also, about a year ago, you had a brain aneurysm, um, which was a, a huge incident for you. And it was basically lucky to kind of come out alive and everything like that. So I'm really excited to dive deep into that story as well. But first off, just appreciate you spending the time with me today, Brooke. Hey, I'm really glad to be here. You know, thanks so much for asking me to be on board. And I'm likewise stoked to be part of it. Um, <laughs> uh, I'm happy to share whatever, uh, you know, sounds good to to you and to your listeners and, and whatnot. This is going to be fun. 
Awesome. Definitely will be. All right. So basically, I was when I was doing my research on you, I was listening to you on a, a past podcast before and something that definitely sparked my interest. I'm, I, there's another word besides interest, but uh, I heard you were a pack-a-day smoker in high school and in college. So I kind of wanted to start there, um, That how you were a pack-a-day smoker and kind of like how you got away from that and how maybe you got into running from there. Sure. So grew up in Richmond, Virginia, where, and I'm not kidding, as a fourth grader, third or fourth grader in the mid, mid to late 70s, we couldn't even, like we had such a rigid dress code, you know, and I say that because it seems so ridiculous that we had such a dress code and then um, it took us to Philip Morris for a tour, like literally a gaggle of 20 girls in fourth grade, all dressed up, probably patent leather shoes, get on our bus, go to, go to Philip Morris. You know, that's one of the largest cigarette mag- manufacturers, and it is in my hotel- hometown of Richmond, Virginia. And I vividly remember just the cigarettes just on the conveyor belt, going into packs, packs in the cartons. And I'm not kidding, they handed us a carton of cigarettes at the end of the tour to take home to our parents. Oh, my God. Gosh. Isn't that ridiculous? That is I know. And, and thinking about that now, and you know, of course, that was like 30 or 40 or whatever years later. And, and what I was like, I cannot believe that. So it was this culture. And, you know, I remember getting permission from my parents to actually smoke on school campus at 16. And that was just what we did. It was a sense of camaraderie. And I also see, I also think that smoking gave me some dab to things that were bothering me. Um, you know, it was a way for me to, um, you know, I guess a way for me to kind of polish off things that were bothering me and whatnot. Um, and so I went through, you know, high school and college doing that. And then I got out and then that's right when all that whole smoking thing, oh, that's bad for you. You shouldn't be doing that. And so I quit cold turkey. Um, just be- simply because that's the thing that motivated motivated you, knowing that yeah, it was bad? Yeah, I was like, why am I doing this? And also, honestly, it was became socially unacceptable. It became something that if you oh, were wow. a smoker, it's kind of like, why are you doing that? You know, we, we can't hang out. Yeah. And, you know, it was, it was still, you know, while if you're on an airplane, you could still smoke. You know, it, you, the smoking section was literally started. The, the seat behind the non-smoking section, there was no sort of partition or whatnot. It just became socially unacceptable. And, you know, you just kind of, you, you don't want to do anything that becomes that, you know, becomes that. And so I just decided to quit and I did. And, you know, I started at that point, I was out of college. I was working and I met my husband and it's like, okay, well, you know, we get married and we all of a sudden have three kids. And this leading to my running story is um, I literally started to run to get the hell out of the house when my kids were little. Um, and oh, and wow. this might this might seem relevant to your female listeners, and maybe it's still, I'm not sure if it's still what's like today, but I remember, you know, when I was entering my late 20s, my, you know, my early 30s, and I was a mom of three kids, and I had totally everything that would be considered, oh, the right path, oh, you must be so happy, you know, you've got a great husband, we had a house, we had three healthy kids. And I was depressed. I honestly think that I was depressed. And running gave me something that was my own. And it was easy. And, you know, um, all I had to do was do, you know, shoes. And, and I think back and, you know, it was 
it was honestly kind of a walk run. It's not like I was some super track star. And that's what everyone assumes that hearing that I've done all this running now and, and I've got some pretty good times in my history and people are like, Oh, you've always been a runner, you know, but no, I had to learn how to run. And then when I first started running, I'm seriously think I was running 14 minute miles. I mean, there's just no track star there, but just gave me something to own on my, you know, um, own myself. It gave me, and, and again, this is my point to, and to, I'm not sure if other women feel this way, but you enter the thirties, so you can the late twenties or thirties and the kids and that whole thing, you become invisible. You know, you become somebody's mom, you become somebody's spouse and there's totally nothing wrong with that. But for like, if you're a woman and you're happy with that, Hey, more power to you. But I was like, well, you know, that's part of me. I'm happy about all that, but I needed something that was mine. And this was mine. I had so many right. people during the process say, Oh, you're so, you know, you're wasting your time. You know, Oh, you're being, you're neglecting your family. When you were running that much, that's, yeah. that's what they were saying. And, and I was like, well, you know, one, <laughs> nobody was even up in my household yet. I mean, how could they possibly think that? other than folks that hadn't kind of come along in this. All I knew was that it made me feel better. Um, it gave me not only something of mine to own, but it gave me just a sense of happiness, of well-being. You know, it made me certainly a better parent when I came home because I honestly then was happy to be at home. Um, and so right. that was just something that running gave me, obviously then made me, uh, you know, a lot happier and, and healthier as well. You know, you think about it and, you know, after three kids and, and, you know, you hit, you can do anything in your life until you're about 30 and then you hit about 30 and it's like, Oh, hmm. Yeah. My body's changing a little bit. And again, nothing really wrong with that. If you're totally down for that, I mean, what do I care? The UBU sort of thing, but that wasn't how I wanted to live my life. And so, you know, like I said, in fact, I just ran into my running coach the other day. He was some kid, um, kid, mid-20s at that point when I was like, I'm like 10 years older than him, right, or 12, whatever, um, who had just bought our local running store. And this was in 2009-11. It just happened. So it was just after that. I just signed up for my first marathon because that's what 9-11 triggered. You know, when 9-11 happens, people had different reactions. And mine was like, oh, you know, I'm not sure. I was about to say a curse word. You know, for my reaction was life is short and I better get to this life list of things to do. And that marathon seemed like very easy um, or easy in air quotes, but it seemed manageable and understandable. You know, other things in my right. in my life list are like, jumping out of an airplane with a parachute. Haven't done that yet. Fear of public yeah. speaking. I used to be immensely fear of public speaking. I'm just kind of checking all that off. But anyway, I remember I saw this guy that I'm talking about, Chris Farley of Pacers um, Running Stores and Alexandria, Virginia, the flagship store in Old Town. And we were actually both running. And I'm like, hey, Chris, you know, and so we stopped to chat it up for a while. And I was like, you changed my life because he gave me the tools that I needed to be successful, the easy steps. And that's what we as a nonprofit right now are doing for kids across the city, tens and, th tens and 
tens of thousands of kids actually across the city, more active than moving, just sparked that happier stuff that, you know, got me going when I was running. And like, I'm a runner, obviously. Um, you put me on a dance floor and it's kind of funny. You know, you put me in a Zumba class and it's hysterical. Um, but, you know, we don't really care how you move, just like move. Um, and so we give easy tips to um, teachers, to principals, to the you know, superintendents for the high level policy changes that can easily be made to get kids active, to the grassroots stuff by giving teachers the you know, a perpetual calendar, let's say, about, you know, different ways you can get your kids moving in the morning and in the afternoon. You know, we suggest every hour, but, you know, again, start small and then you grow from there. Right. So you, you said that this guy, Chris Farley, gave you the tools you needed in terms of running. I may have misunderstood yeah. it, but so what, were, what, what did he give you? Well, literally to, he like, gave me an easy to follow plan to get through it, to build and become a runner. Okay. And physically okay. was there, you know, doing track, se track sessions and that sort of thing. But he also believed in me. He believed in others that were kind of part of his group of people who were way older than he was, that he who was, you know, helping them go through um, the steps to run a marathon, but honestly, it's so much bigger than that. You know, it's that support and it's the belief that together we can make great things happen. Mm -hmm. And he had us, mm -hmm. he banded us all together. You know, all of us are still friends, actually. So, so. That, that's awesome. That's awesome. When you said when you first started running, you got into it basically as a way to get out of the house and kind of free yeah. yourself of, um, the real world, if you will, kind of like getting out of the depression or whatever, because it was something that, was was yours so when did it kind of turn into something that you want to do a little so bit more competitively I'm proudly type a um <laughs> i don't know if i've ever heard anybody say that before proud i mean not not, not that it's a yeah. bad thing because i'm probably more type yeah. a too but i just don't think i've ever well, heard I think anybody it's a compliment say. you know if somebody says you're top a you're like yeah i'm committed well be, people who are type a take it as a compliment <laughs> i think <laughs> People who are type A are like, damn right, I'm type yeah. A. Well, go, go type A, people. Um, what? So I was so mad at the time of my first marathon. Yeah, I crossed the finish line. Yeah, I did it in all one piece. But I was like, I can do that better. And so for the next, I'd say, three or four years, it was all about that, you know, being best in my age group. And I would, at that point, I was 35, you know running a sub 310 marathon. Yeah, I did that. You know, so it's all about that. And there's something very bonding about being on a track team, you know, be, or being on a team in general. And I remember helping, you know, having you know, my runner colleagues, you know, championing me, me championing them, us feeding off of one another's energy and excitement and drive. And I mean, some of it is terrible because some of it honestly is terrible and no fun. But then when you cross that finish line or, you know, that's you finished your 400 or whatever it is, you're like, oh, man, that was terrible. But look at our times. Aren't we great? You know, <laughs> that sort of thing. Um, and so I think that that was a, a really, you know, that's a big 
part of um, where I was at the time. And then I realized that I'd gotten, honestly, as far as I was going to get unless I wanted to truly take it up to the next level. And I cared, but I didn't care about it that much. And so at that point, I remember thinking about, okay, obviously, I still love to run. Obviously, I'm going to still run. But what can I do with it? Because I like to do things for a reason and for a purpose. And at that time, I was, I think, dropping a kid off in soccer practice you know, and had to drive through an area where, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say this, but where you sort of consider, hey, is my door locked or, where, you know, whatnot. And so I was at a light and I remember I was first at the light and I remember a working poor mom um, in her cleaning uniform or, or whatnot pushing a stroller across the street laden with shopping bags from like the shop right or whatever the grocery store was or the mini mart was. And I didn't realize it, but I was staring at her and our eyes met and locked. And I knew then that I couldn't, like I, I was looking for something to commit to and I wanted every kid and every family and every person to feel the same positive benefits that I felt from being physically active. And I was in a spot to do something and I couldn't drive away, which I'm sure I had done thousands of times before, but it's, you know, you have these moments where something clicks and something sparks and that was the moment. And I just knew that I could not drive away and not, do anything about it and still have a some respect for myself and you know and, and selfishly I was looking for something to do with to build and grow on my own that I that I could do and so there it was running Brook was formed that day um, you know I think that was you know early March and I think we had formed our nonprofit by late May that year and um, since I didn't have any nonprofit experience, um, I said, well, what's going to be my shtick? You know, what's going to get people to kind of listen or pay attention or maybe not support yeah. or maybe, you know, whatever that hook. Yeah. So how many marathons have you ru had you run up to that point? Wait, or like, was before? it? I was like that normal marathon wow. person, you know, oh one a year, maybe twice a year, spring, fall, you know, um, and right. so I said, well, you know, I'm going to do it around the marathons and, and whatnot. And I remember, have you ever heard of Mike Wardian, an ultra marathoner? No. Um, he runs ridiculously well and ridiculous challenges. Like the long, like my little hundred miler, you know, my whole like lap course on a pseudo, you know, on a trail that for me is really tricky for him to be like, eh. You know, I mean, he does across the Sahara Desert. He does, you know, Western states. He does all of these immense things. He did that marathon a day in five different, in all seven continents. Yeah, it's on my life list. I want to do that one. Yeah, so that's why I said, all right, I'll run a marathon on all um, seven, uh, in all 50 states. I, I started there first. How, how, I mean, but like, there's there's more into that. There's more into that. How how do you come up with like in all fifty states I'm gonna run a marathon after having run like three uh, marathons? It's type A. It's just the way I am. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it's like go <laughs> big or go home. Like why do anything and he'd be like, Yeah, well, you know. No, I love it. Yeah. 
That, that seems kind of hard. Like, no, I mean, the things that scare you are the things that you should run towards, not run away from. And so this scared the heck out of me. Are you kidding me? But I said, okay, you know, I said, all right, I'm going to, and I, my, so I was having coffee. Actually, it was Chris Farley at Pacers that got me together with Mike Wardian, who was just merging as this amazing distance athlete whom I had never heard about. And I said, okay, so this is what I'm sort of thinking about, and I'm going to do it for kids in Alexandria, and I'm going to run some marathons. And he basically just said, okay, well, that's cool, but so what? Like, how how often are you going to do it? And I'm like, yeah, you know, over a couple years or so. I had, and and I, I, made, I said to him, I said, Mike, what would impress you? And he said, well, a marathon a month would impress me. And so that's where that idea was born. So it was a marathon a month covering the 50 states, um, the world majors, which, uh, let's see, there actually there were at the time five, but they're now six. So Boston, um, New York, Chicago, Berlin, London, and then like when I was halfway through, they added Tokyo. So then, of course, I had to go around Tokyo after that, which was, <laughs> was awesome. Don't get me wrong, but um, yeah. yeah so great. and then to add another layer, it's like okay, so I'm going to run a marathon in all seven continents in each of the fifty states. I'm going to run a marathon month. I'm going to pay for all my own travel expenses and fees. So every dollar donated to Running Brook would go to get kids active across Alexandria. And so that was okay. in 2009. And, you know, we're coming close to $2 million invested, you know, in this way. Um, and it's incredible to see the joy of the kids and the learning that, I mean, the kids get it. They're like, yeah, the blood's no longer in my butt, you know, blood's in my brain. I'm like, you got it, you know, because they do. He's yeah. like, oh, I, you know, I, I got my focus. I'm not looking out the window and I'm not distracted. And then to hear principals say, oh, you know, actually we've had fewer kids come to our, come to my office because you know, they were sent here for being disruptive and off task in the classroom. Uh, so all that is what still feeds and motivates me um, and I now have a team of two others who work with me, and then a very engaged board who roll up their sleeves as well. Very cool. Well, I want to get into a little bit of some of those races since I can't ignore the all like all seven continents. That blows me away. So, yeah. what was there? I mean, like I've got to ask about Antarctica. Like, what a marathon yeah. on Antarctica? What's that even uh, like? I mean, it was. I mean, what, so what was the, what was the weather? What was the temperature during that time? So it's, um, it's really, it's really interesting. We, um, took an icebreaker across, um, the strait there from South Africa to Antarctica itself. And it's one of the most narrow passages with all the waterways going through. And so imagine it's just like pound, 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 you know, across. It took us, I don't quite remember. I think it was, you know, two days, three days. Russian, it was a Russian icebreaker. So it was like all, everything was in Russian, you know, it, it was, it was an interesting group of people will get together to go do that. So after meeting, after getting on the ship, after going there, you know, you dock and then you actually ride, um, um, inflatable boats, you know, with like, a um, an engine on the back. I forget what you kind of call that, that you have to hold on to. Yeah. 
um, that then take you to um, take you to the island itself. And you know, I think the weather was, you know, gusting winds. I, it was sleet, snow, and rain. Um, it went from, you know, it was very, it wasn't like a stable temperature where, you know, oh, you know, it's cold in the beginning and then it's going to get up to this and then it's going to be nice and, you know, I'll take my hat off. Like, you know, no, it's like you had your hat on, you had like three different layers on. Um, and so it was, uh, it was in between, or excuse me, it was among, um, race, excuse me, it was among science, scientific bases from different countries. And so we ran from like the Chilean base to, I'm kind of making this up because I don't quite remember, um, to yeah, say the Russian right. base and back. It was like a double out and back and whatnot. So that was one of the ones I ended up, um, I was the first female to finish that one. Oh, that's so cool. That's kind of cool, you know, and it. I was going to say, was that like one of the hardest ones or if not, what was the hardest one? That was one? one of the hardest ones. I mean, that was one just to finish. Um, but the everything about it from the weather to the surface to um, just the uncertainty of the footing, you know, all of that. But I think the hardest was the Great Wall of China. So, I mean, so, clearly hmm. it was built to be not easy <laughs> to maneuver. So you did a marathon on the Great Wall of China? Oh my gosh, I didn't even know that was a thing. That's yeah. so cool. So it was, I think, two 5K segments or maybe three 5K segments on the wall, but then you would jump off and run through tiny villages and, you know, and I remember going through this tiny village and, you know, there were, it was all dirt roads and all the villagers are out. And I thought I was going to go, you know, hey, give all the kids a high five. And so I go run close, my hand out, like I'm going to give a high five, not knowing that that wasn't, a tr you know, they didn't, I scared the pants off of these little kids because I don't know if they thought I was doing, you know, um, but clearly high fives aren't um, just something that they do in their lives. And, and um, I felt bad about that. <laughs> I still obviously feel bad about it because I think about it, you know, ten years later or whatnot. But um, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, what was, so what was the hardest part about Actually it? Actually, like, on the wall the itself, terrain so or just all the stairs are different heights and different. You know, the treads are different depths. It went from six inches oh. to maybe a foot and a half. You know, to everything was irregular, and so there's no way to get a cadence to it. Um, stairs themselves were, let's say. Um, you might have had, you know, depending on the train, because it goes up and over the mountains, you know, you would go from, you know, maybe 50 stairs. And I think some of them were, you know, 100 or 150. You think about that because you're going up and you're going down. You're going up and you're going down. And there's no railings. And there's, you know, sand and all sorts of debris that make it very easy to slip if you, know, you didn't land right on, the, on your ball or your foot. And, you know, I, in fact, you know, one of my running friends, or one of the um, people with us, she fell, slipped, and then careened down, you know, probably we consider it two or three flights of stairs. And, I mean, clearly that pulled her out of the race because she couldn't recover. Right. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't safe. So at that point, I'm like, I'm just walking the stairs. You know, there's nothing. I just want yeah. to be done, you know. To be able to finish and cross the finish line and be healthy and not not break my leg or, or anything. So, yeah, that was great.
Jeez. Yeah, it was great. That's and nuts. as I say that, it's like, oh, that was great though. As I say that, it's a it's a great story to be able to yeah. tell afterwards. Yeah. That's for sure. Yeah. There's no doubt that. Um, all right. Well, I want to get a little bit into the you know your brain aneurysm story. So sure. let's go ahead. You went. You were going on getting ready to go on a run, basically at a park. Um, and I'll just kind of let you take uh, take so, the story from there. It was um, March 17th of 2018. Woke up that morning. I was just. It was my first training run. So let me back up the story a little bit. Yeah. It was my first training yeah. run to start training for Leadville, the Leadville 100-mile trail race. And everything that I've always challenged myself to do, I've always been able to accomplish, except for this Leadville piece, where I made it 87 miles in 27 hours, and I was the first person they pulled off the course for missing the time um, the time allotments. So you have to go through each checkpoint within a certain time. And I mm. missed the last checkpoint by two minutes. Oh. So I'm still trying to figure out if that bothers me or not. I mean, obviously, I'm running another 100-mile trail race, so obviously it still bothers me. Um, and I learned a lot because I've never, I had never experienced something that I couldn't gut out. Like when you challenge yourself to a level to where your body just shuts down, there's no way you can gut something out. Okay. So I was, <laughs> um, I had signed back up for Leadville the following year. It was my first long run. I, you know, been, I continued with my monthly marathons. It was March. My coach said, it's time for us to start those long distance trainings on the trails again. I'm like, I'm down. That morning, I wake up, I feel great, um, get my act together, get all my stuff together. And because it's March, I don't have to race out of the house. Like, you know, if you're um, during the summertime, and I'm in Virginia, but in many parts of the country, you've got to leave it oh, dark 100. So March is like, yeah, you know, the high temperature is going to be, you know, top 60 or tops 50, you know. So I remember kind of sleeping in a little bit late, getting all my act together, getting in my car. I drove down to the checkpoint of where, um, or excuse me, to the site where I had done all of my training the past year. And we had had a terrible windstorm pass through two weeks before that. Tons of trees came down. So I'm thinking, so the park that I had trained in before was shut down because of so many trees down. And I'm a total rule follower. When I think the rules are valid. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Type it. I remember thinking, now I can just park my car. Nobody would ever know. I'm just going to get on the trail, go run what I know. And for some reason, I didn't. For some reason, I'm like, damn, park's closed. I remember idling in my car for a minute. And I'm like, hmm. So I remembered there's you know a handful of other whatevers and parks nearby, and so I typed in the only one I can remember called Fountainhead, ironically because of the head, head, you know whatnot. Yeah. And so I remember yeah. you know, um, map questing my way there. I get there, I'm parking, I'm getting my act together, and I um, noticed three women that had kind of come through, and they were in the middle part of their run, and I said, and they were legit, not, not that. Anyone wouldn't be a legit runner, but 
they had all the trail gear on, you know, and I'm like, hey, you know, I need to go out for two, three, five hours. I don't remember what it was. Um, should I go, you know, path A, path B, path C, whatnot? And they're like, oh, hey, run with us. And normally I'm a solo runner because I have my best thoughts when I'm running. And um, for some reason I said, yeah, okay, sure, I'll run with you, you know. And so, you know, I put my vest on, I have my, my water bottles. And, and so we go out and we're kind of going through that beginning process of, oh, what are you training for? It's just clearly we're all training for something. What are you doing? You know, what do you run? And I just remember thinking, after about literally five minutes in, it's not right. You know, my stomach started feeling upset. And this is funny because, funny and not funny, we had just eaten, my husband and I, at a restaurant where we had eaten months before, where he got food poisoning. And I finally convinced him to go back to that restaurant because it's one of my favorite restaurants. So we ate, and I was like, oh, food poisoning. Damn, not me too, you know? And then, you know, and then it kind of, kind of got worse and then a little bit worse. And then all of a sudden it was like a sledgehammer was hitting my, hitting my head. And I remember kneeling. I remember getting sick a couple of times. And then that's where my memory ends. And I reconnected with these three women because they said, I said to them, you guys go ahead. I'm going to be fine. You know, I mean, I was worried about holding up and disrupting there, but they refused to leave me. And they're one of the first reasons why I survived. So they walked me back to the car. Of course, I don't remember. I call my husband, and that's the second miracle. He answered his phone. Um, and I don't mean that in any whatever, but he never answered his phone. And I said, Hey, you know, something's not right. You know, I, I feel you know generally okay, but again, no memory of this. And he does find my friends. He, you know, finds me about half an hour later. He says, we talked the entire time. By the time he gets there, I'm like, hey, I'm going to be fine. I can drive my car back home. And so he says, I'm driving up 95, you know, going about 45 to 50 miles an hour, you know, get close to home, come into the house, you know, and then get to the house. And he says, I fell asleep at the wheel at that last light close to the house. But anyway, I parked the car because he says I didn't want to leave it there because I was afraid it was going to get towed or it's going to be a pain to then have to go back and go get it. You know, all that, you know, small stuff. I had, we, I, we had no idea what was happening or had happened to me. But I mean, I had blood that was literally leaking into my brain. And to look at me, to talk with me, I was making sense. Um, uh, I had no facial droop. I had nothing that would, on the, on the surface value, tell you that something's really wrong here. You need to get to that hospital right away. So I remember coming in, leaving all of my stuff on the floor, which, again, is very unusual, another unusual thing for me. I remember going over to the couch. I still will not sit on that couch and taking a two-hour nap before waking up and saying to my husband, Chris, something's not right. You know that? You know, you know, and I think is, uh, again, I can only speak from the female perspective and perhaps this is, you know, perspective from, from everyone, but kind of like, I can get this out. It's fine. It's this food poisoning. Yeah, I got a bad headache, but nothing Tylenol can't do. Then, you know, after all that time went through, you, know, you have to listen to yourself and something in my head, my body told me something was not right. 
And so at that point, Chris says that I told him to call the insurance company because I was afraid that we'd go to the hospital and then everything was going to be fine and we'd get like a $3,000 bill or whatever. And I do remember overhearing the woman on the phone, the doctor on call or the nurse on call and whatnot saying, get her to the hospital now. And luckily we live close to a hospital. So we get in the car, he drives me. I remember at that point, I was throwing up a whole whole bunch at that point. We had grabbed the kitchen bag, you know, still a you know half a day's worth of trash in it, you know, that. I just remember being in the waiting room, getting sick and sick. And I remember scaring, you know, I think, you know, some boys were there. They probably had gotten, you know, stitches or whatnot. And then I they helicoptered me to, um, from Inova, Virginia, which is a great hospital, but to Inova Fairfax, so they have a neuro a very large neurological department and team where that's where I was then for the next month of my life. Um, It was touch and go for uh, two and a half weeks, three weeks. There was so much blood in my brain that had been leaking out at that point where they were pretty sure they knew what happened. You know, they were kind of keeping me alive but there was so much blood at that point that we couldn't find where the leak was. And so, you know, um, I'm actually, will text with my surgeon sometimes. So he was like, I remember he, was, he said, I was in New York the day that I got the phone call, you know, on some sort of business or whatnot, speakers, something or another. He was like, I know what I'm doing tomorrow. And then he went in and I don't know if you were able to see you, but, yeah, I've got this great scar that wraps all the way around and goes down. And um, my hair is now grown out to where you can't really see it. But I went in for almost a 10-hour surgery where they took you know, my skull apart and got, kind of went down and then went deep down inside. And I actually have something that it's a talisman for me, um, but it's a clip. And I literally have a clip like this deep in my brain, right at my stem here, that's holding everything together. Um, oh, my gosh. Uh, they patched me up. I mean, I've got titanium plates in my head, so I can barely feel this. Right. But on the surface, Oof. I mean, you would never know. It took me probably about 16 months. This is a fairly recent occurrence where my body mass is back to where it was because when I was in the hospital, um, I lost 30 pounds. Just the sheer inactivity, you know, your muscles just melt, they atrophy. Um, You know, I was eating, but I mean, there's no way to, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, and at the surface, you wouldn't have no idea, but I had to retrain my brain how to walk because things that we learn as infants, you know, as we're, you know, learning how to sit, meet, you know, fall, fall into standing, that had gotten fried in my brain. And so, and I still suffer a little bit with the toe drag, with being able to get my brain to tell my body what to do. Um, and kind of lift and elevate. So sometimes I'll, you know, I'll trip or I'll do something, you know, my family would probably say, Oh, you did that beforehand and and whatnot. And that's probably a little bit true, (laughs) but I, you know, I notice all those things and 
it's still a challenge a little bit and it's still a challenge and it's incredibly interesting one i mean obviously i'm incredibly grateful and thankful to be alive i mean i'm, a, I'm a probably a one percent of a one percent i um i wouldn't say you know if you do the num if you do the numbers i shouldn't be here and alive um and my neurologists all agree that my fitness going into this enabled me to survive I mean, obviously, it did nothing to do with the brain. Obviously, the running had nothing to do with, you know, me getting the aneurysm. that totally false. I could have had this aneurysm in my body since my birth. Um, mm. You know, why it sprung on, you know, St. Patty's Day in 2018. Who knows? Yeah, right. But so many other things could have gone wrong. You know, being in that hospital bed, if I wasn't in the best health ever, um being there then part long i mean everything could have gone wrong everything had the potential of going wrong and my body was able to handle the status quo which enabled everyone to buy enough time to figure out where is this problem and how can we fix it mm -hmm. so like this did happen i mean geez what seven like at 17 months ago probably now what yeah. And you, you've talked about some of the struggles, but what do you think are a couple of the biggest struggles? One, like what was the biggest physical struggle and coming back from it? And then two, what was the biggest like mental so, struggle coming back from it? I think I've already kind of gone through that was, you know, really gaining the weight back. That's the visible stuff. That's the stuff people get. It's the inside of the head stuff that, you know, people don't understand or it can be frustrating. And, and I totally get that because it's frustrating as hell when I don't remember something. Right. You know, I have years right. of my life that have been totally erased where I won't remember, oh, we saw that movie. We did that. We've already been there. Um, wow. I just don't remember. Or I'll have like a shade of a memory and you know, family or friends will show the picture and then it'll start kind of coming back. So, it, you know, those things will, will polish, those memories will polish. It's really interesting because, or I think it's interesting anyway, you know, I mean, I now think at a 30,000 foot level, which when you're building and growing something, is a phenomenal thing, this vision to be able to see, and not just vision personally, vision as to who else do we need on our team who else has parallel and overlapping objectives that we can work together on you know who else could benefit or we benefit or that proactive thinking so in some ways and i'm surprised i haven't said this already it's the best worst thing that's ever happened to me because I did not have that ability. I mean, I had vision. I had that ah, diagonal. I mean, sort of going forward. But now I'm like, right. oh, I know where we're going. And that's really exciting. Why do you think that is now that you have that after having it? Do you think it was like literally just something kind of like with your brain? Or do you think it was more just kind of like because you had it, maybe you have like greater perspective in terms of like, being like thankful that you're just like living that sort of well, a thing or what do you think it is? I mean, there is a lot of that gratefulness and I'll get into that. Um, you know, sometimes I'll almost drive off the road because I'll be like, Oh, look at that beautiful crowd. And they're like, Oh, holy smokes, I'm driving. <laughs> or, you know, being able to hear these, like I can hear birds wings flapping as they're passing me, you know, 
there's this light. Like I literally saw the other side. I literally saw, and what scares me or what makes me elated is I wasn't scared at that. I wasn't scared to be close to death. Like it was, it was warm. You had that conscious huh? thought? Huh? You had that conscious yes. thought? Yes. And I remember my family talking me out of it. I heard, or not talking me out, but realizing. And I remember choosing not to go. And I remember like, yeah, but not today, you know. Why did I go there? So this is the bad thing. Um, so I'm at this 30,000 foot level. I have no idea. Like I had vision before, but now it's like this global community vision of how do we do this and build something bad, bad, like good. You right. Know? We, right, right. And then interestingly, I go to this 30,000 30, foot to this incredibly granular piece. What's difficult are all the steps in between mm -hmm. where my brain can get lost. Like I'll know where I want to go. I'll have something incredibly granular to start with. But the next three to five steps can be fuzzy for me. You mean in the sense of like because of your brain aneurysm brain or just like the way it could think, like the way it could process things, the way it could remember things. Like this is not the same brain that I, you know, I had before. I mean, and, it, and honestly, it's not, but not only because, well, one, it happened, but I mean, you think of everything that had to regrow, right? I mean, so much had to regrow to be back there. I mean, so, you know, it's, it can be annoying as heck, you know, my family or, um, you know, my assistant's amazing. Um, she's a former FBI agent and <laughs> she's like detail oriented and she's got that. Okay. You know, these are the 10 things we need to do to get from here to here. Like great idea, Brooke, you know, I guess some of our boss, she thinks that that's a great idea. Also, she also tells me like, Brooke, that's a great idea for another day. <laughs> you know, um, But, you know, so, it, you know, it's that teamwork of, you know, how, how can we, build something using what you do really well, what I do really well, what some a community partner does really well, so everyone can benefit from it. And you know, that's a really exciting place to be. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that's cool that you now have that big vision and that was kind of something that you didn't have before. So I want to kind of stay on that sort of a topic, but outside of what you just said, but so is there anything that you do differently now, like in your life, maybe on a daily basis or like a weekly basis that you didn't do before and you now do because of this incident? Well, yeah, I appreciate life. It's very easy to go through the day in, day out, the week to week, you know, and just let be like a surface dweller of life. And this best worst thing that ever happened to me makes me not only, you know, that incredibly driven has, has stayed with me, but I will slow down because I really want to deep dive and understand, which probably scares the pants off some people. What makes you tick? Like, why, what, you know, what's your history like? You know, what are your goals? Um, what, what drives you to do what you do? 
um, and, and just incredibly interested in why people are who they are and what their past and history has happened to kind of make them that way. Mm -hmm. um, it's fascinating. Mm -hmm. You know, before I was like, ah, you know, everybody had the same, you know, same experiences I did, or, you know, it was a very, nothing wrong with vanilla ice cream, but just a very vanilla perspective of the world. And this makes you be like, oh, wow, there's, you know, chocolate chip and the strawberry and there's, you know, great, great nuts. It's like, that's like my favorite syrup, you know, my, you know, whatever. I went down, to, I went down a rabbit hole there, but it really <laughs> does make you want to understand people. Right. Yeah. Huh. That's interesting. Um, so we talked about beforehand, um, how one of the things that you struggle with is con keeping, uh, consistent like good mojo going on so i want you to talk about like talk about that struggle a little bit and how you kind of work on trying to keep a good kind of a good mojo going it's easy to get overwhelmed and you know i think all of us get overwhelmed and if anybody says oh i never get overwhelmed it's not telling you the truth but I, what i try to tell myself and it seems a little bit trite is to kind of in, appreciate the accomplishment so far and be okay with the fact that, okay, you didn't get to where you intended to go, but did you get part of the way? Like, did you move the ball forward a little bit? And to, you know, appreciate that moment is, is how you can kind of tease out the, um, that unhappiness of not getting to where you wanted to go. Um, mm -hmm. um, does that answer your question? I feel like I might have not quite yeah. gotten that way. No, I, no, I think I think you do. I think basically it's like you said. It's but, but the reason that you struggle a little bit with keeping maybe a consistent good mojo is because you're always looking to basically like achieve a yeah. particular goal, and yeah. it's impossible to always be like at that achievement point. So always trying to be grateful for the progress that you've made so thus far and kind of like yeah. see the progress yeah. that you've made thus yeah. far is basically yeah. what I'm getting. Yeah. At. Good. I explain myself well. Yeah. I mean, one of the worst <laughs> things about being a type A person is you're just never happy with, with what you've done. Right. Like you've never, you never appreciate right. like, holy smokes. You know, I say to you, Oh, I've run 135 marathons, not appreciating. I mean, you can get, it's like, Oh, it's like 54,000 steps per marathon times that by 130, you know, that I've been to all the continents. I've been to all the states. I'm like, wow. Like when I take a moment and just think about that, I'm like, that's kind of, that's kind of interesting. <laughs> I find myself boring as hell, but yeah. I was like, oh. yeah, it's kind of interesting, you know? Yeah. Well, and I think that's a, I think that's a good lesson. It's actually something that I've been, that I've thought about literally was when I was listening to a podcast, I could picture myself. I was driving out of Kroger, listening to a podcast and I had this thought, um, of one of the things that I struggle with the, the most is kind of like you, like you just talked about how you struggle with kind of keeping good mojo. And for me, it's because like, I always want to be further than where yes. I currently am. I yes. always, I always kind of wish I've, already achieved a little bit more and I'm not necessarily patient throughout the journey, but I also in a sense feel like I've done okay with being patient throughout the journey simply because I do a great job of setting benchmarks for myself and writing yeah. them out. 
And yeah. in a sense, like the way I thought about it was like, I'm almost tricking myself to in not being patient because I have, yeah. I've achieved the benchmark. So yeah. I've achieved yeah. something. Um, yeah. So I don't have to be patient because I achieved that. But it is allowing me to be a little bit more patient yes. long term because I've, I have something to achieve yes. along the way. Small, measurable goals. Small, you know, mm-hmm. s- smaller benchmarks that you can cross off your list. Absolutely. Right. So when you, when you first started the, uh, your organization, like, did you have any idea what doing a nonprofit was like? Like what, like you said, you had that moment that was like, I want to help other people get the benefits or feel the benefits of being physically active. But I just am very intrigued as to what then sparks you to doing a nonprofit when you've like had never been doing anything like that before. Yeah. So no, I had no nonprofit experience. I just right. knew I, you know, I was just, you know, knew that um, I was in a spot where I could do something, um, spot in my life, spot in my, you know, family's life, and that piece where, and I feel almost selfish taking a claim that some people will want to give me because, you know, what I get from it is huge um i mean yeah why you know while i'm the you know the big driver behind a lot of it i feel that you know the piece that i get from it all of the you know it's it's the efforts of the hard work you know to build something and to you know uh, and to see what that's going to turn out to and and while it can be you know i mean you think it's like you created that like it's something Mm -hmm. that because of you know, because of you, and it's incredibly kind of cool to see it both, you know, in the past, but then also think about where where you're going to build that moving forward. And so to not be, you know, hey, glad I didn't mess that up. <laughs> you know, I mean, I'm, I'm glad this is a good idea because um, you know you had to get a lot of, um, you know, that's you know that support. I mean, I certainly wasn't the, I you know the 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 only driver to make it a success. Mm-hmm. Well, that's awesome. So, after the after the aneurysm, have you have you done a couple races since the aneurysm? Yeah. So I've since run. Let's see, October, November, December, January, February, March, April, May. That's eight. I ran. I ran June nine, and then I ran five in July. I ran a marathon a day and five different. A marathon a day for five days in five different states. This is all since the aneurysm. This is all yeah. since the aneurysm. <laughs> what? Oh my gosh! So how well? How quickly afterwards? Then did you, you said so? It was March March seventeenth, twenty eighteen. So when was yeah. the first race? It was after Marine that? Corps. It was my first. It was my first one back, and it was my first marathon, as you know. You know, way 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 back in the day. It was six. It was six months later. Were you nervous about going back into it? Yes. No. <laughs> I mean, because that, because <laughs> honestly, you know, running gave me my life um, for so, in so many different ways that we've already talked about. It was like me returning back to what I knew brought me joy and brought me health. Right. And it was like returning back to that. It gave, you know, semblance of my life. Um, 
in a physical way. Because I could have easily, mm-hmm. I could have easily been, yeah, I'm done with that. But just knowing, you know, again, that whole mental health thing, like I had to build back to it. I couldn't not do that because I just knew that I would never be at the same happiness level that running gives me. Um, the health reasons, you know, also was something that I wanted to prove to myself. You know, so many things of, of what I do is to prove, either prove others wrong, but usually just to prove to myself that, you know, that I can do that. Um, what were the first few races back like physically? Real hard. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, because that, that, that deep muscle endurance that, you know, I had spent years building up was erased during that month in the hospital. Yeah. And so it was like physically hard. Not that, not that it was never easy. Don't get me wrong. It's, you know, it's always a challenge no matter what, no matter how many times you've done something or run something, something will happen. You know, something unexpected will happen. And so, um, so the first, you know, and, and I think that, you know, the initial one was elation. I can still do this. My brain remembers how to run this. And it was like, it felt so good to be going back to normal life and to normalcy. And I think I felt that way. And I still do feel that way. I mean, every single time that I go out for a run that I have to remind myself, Brooke, a year ago, you weren't even running, you know, I think, you know, you were running again, but where are we in August? Um, you weren't running more than an hour at a time. I mean, last weekend I had back-to-back five-hour runs that were self-supported in you know ninety-degree heat. I mean, to think about was you know to yeah. think about that yeah. um, makes you realize kind of, and it's incredible what your body can do um, just with a little little love and a little self-care and a little belief in yourself and you know taking these small steps. And even today, I you know I people are like, oh my god, how are you doing that? Or and how, how do you possibly run? It's not like I think to myself in the morning when I wake up, oh, yay, I get to go run five hours today. You know, just what I yeah. wanted to do is, you know, my family's at home or, you know, something I'm missing out or, you know, I'm not going out the night before because I know I have to get up at 4 a.m. in order to beat the heat and get, you know, whatever. Um, and it's like, you know, you just take it in small pieces. So I say to myself, you know, it's going to take it an hour at a time or whatever it might be. I'm just, and then I say to myself, Brooke, how many times have you done that? You know, how many times have you gone out for a long run? How many times have you got this? You know, and also appreciate that feeling terrible now, other than the brain aneurysm piece. I'm going to leave that aside because that's an anomaly. But you know, knowing that just because you feel bad now, to appreciate the badness and that's what running taught me and that's also what this whole aneurysm taught me is depreciate appreciate the badness because you know the badness is going to dissipate and once you embrace the badness in a while that bad you know this is hard it's hot i'm bored my feet hurt whatever you know once you embrace that it diminishes um, one thing we haven't talked about is I have asthma and exercise induced asthma. <laughs> what? I have asthma and exercise induced asthma. Oh my gosh. And I remember the feeling of 
and that I had already run like five marathons or four marathons by this point. And all of a sudden, this that shocking feeling of not being able to breathe and then hyperventilating. Because when your mind gets scared about what is happening to you, and it helps to know what it is, but once now I'm like, that's just your asthma. Just dial it back a little bit. You know it's going to be okay. So instead of trying to run harder, trying to run through it, you know, it's just that dialing back is appreciating what it is that then allows your body to be like, okay, I'm cool. I got it. And it allows you to continue. And so that's mm. another big piece that, you know, I'm glad that that came, that I was thinking about is, is something I wanted to share today was appreciating the elephant in the room. Because once you identify what it is, you can figure out your way around it. You know, and if it's an elephant, maybe going under the legs, you know, appreciating like, okay, that's terrible. What can I do to get myself through it and around it? And it could be as easy as, you know, 30 seconds, you know, um, that appreciation to be like, oh, yeah, I should do that. Or, oh, yeah, this sucks, but I know it's going to go away. Or um, it's all, you know, whatever you need to do to talk your way through it. Yeah, that's, I'm glad I, I almost, so ever since I started this podcast, I've gotten a little bit better and better about, about not interjecting and letting the person finish their thought and finish their words. And I'm really glad I did there because I thought where you were going with that is um, I thought you were going to say like embrace the badness because it makes the goodness seem that much better, but it wasn't really that it was embrace the badness because then you're going to find a way to go through it and your body just kinds of, kinds of fine, kind of just yes. finds a way. Um, yes. And I never really heard it put that way before. And I thought that's absolutely yes. fascinating. Yes. It's, it's amazing what your mind can do. And it's amazing how your body listens to your mind. You know, mm -hmm. it's this, I remember one of my coaches used to say, start slow, finish fast. You know, because it's, it's your body's warming up. If you start out too fast, then you're going to, you know, run too fast, which means then you're going to bonk out and cross the finish line. So if you think about it in those ways, um, it's all about time. It's all time related. But if you think of the start slow, finish fast, or put another way, um, control and restraint. So you realize through controlling your mind and restraining whatever it is, that success to get around it, through it, <laughs> jump over it. Um, is, is, is that kind of what it is when you say, when you, th you think, when you say, to acknowledge the badness is, is, is it kind of like taking control and like responsibility for it and then like kind of do something about it? I, I'm just like fascinated about, about how you phrase it. It gives you ownership and understanding and the tools. So you might not be able to do anything about it. Again, mm -hmm. going back to Leadville, I got one of, one of my downfalls was I got huge blisters, huge blisters on my feet. Where at mile 50, I stopped. I finally stopped at an aid station where they make you pop your own blisters. I won't get into that. But then they wrapped my feet in oh. duct tape. And if I had at mile 30, when I realized that, hey, something's up with my feet, you know, my feet aren't feeling that yeah. great. 
realized, you know, and I had, you know, we had already run through rivers and streams at that point, And I knew that wet socks, you know, could be a turning point, the blister whole thing. So instead of me saying to myself, and this is a huge learn, you know, it's, it's all learning. It's, it's appreciating that it hurts. Then get, then go on yourself. What can I do about that? And what I should have done, which hopefully as I'm saying this to you, as you know, my hundred mile trail race is coming up in seriously two weeks. Oh, wow. Is that learning lesson oh, of wow. to understand it, to process it, deal with it, to understand the hurt and then be able to be like, I need to stop, give myself a 30 second breather switch out my socks could be as easy as that or it's it's the whole mental piece of i need to appreciate that i'm having an asthma attack there's nothing i can do about it other than not add extra stress to it slow it down a little bit so that i can get through it or the brain aneurysm okay so what can i do about that um well when i was in the hospital so drugged up god knows i couldn't do anything about it other than just hang tight <laughs> but then once i got out it's like appreciate it okay so it was the best worst thing that's ever happened to me in my life. Um, other than, you know, obviously I would not put marriage and kids in the worst, but that they're definitely one of the best. But, you know, it's one of those things where I got, I've got to appreciate that, that near death. What does that mean? I'm still here. So what am I going to do with that in my life? And I can't let that scare me. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, like you said, I think it is just kind of taking extreme ownership of kind of whatever negative situation is there and just f trying to find a way to right. work around it or work through it. Right. Um, well, uh, I'm going to go down to the last okay. couple questions here. Uh, okay. And one of the questions I always ask, well, I always start with the age question. So how old are you currently? 51. Okay, 51. Awesome. So 10 years down the road, inevitably, you're going to be 61, right? So what I want to ask you is, uh, what does 61-year-old Brooke Curran look like? What are you doing? Um, and what have you accomplished up to that point? So running, you know, I, I never... That's a really interesting question because I always think in advance for everyone else, but I never think in advance for myself because what I'm doing is I'm living the dream. And I say that not to be, oh, I'm living the dream. But honestly, I'm living the dream. I'm doing exactly what I want to be doing. So I hope in 10 years I'm doing exactly what I'm doing, I want to be doing. Um, you know, is that, am I still running marathons? I can't imagine not. But I can't imagine, you know, if I want to allow myself the flexibility and the freedom to, if I want to start doing, I don't know. I don't know if I want to become a gymnast or something. I mean, or if I want to, you know, yeah. it, it become some sort of like senior and I can't believe I used to use that word, but <laughs> weightlifter or something like it's gotta be physical because I mean, our bodies are just crying to be physical. Um, with, you know, organizationally with my work, you know, oh, I hope to spend more time with my family. Um, I did, you know, they were during with all my traveling and whatnot. I mean, they did have to um, be self-sufficient, um, which is good. Taught them life skills. You know, my kids were able to go to school and learn how to do laundry, you know, that sort of thing. Or some of their, some of their friends or some of the other people's school had no idea how to run a dishwasher or what, uh, Washington. But, um, you know, it's that um, I want to make sure that we've built and expanded running Brook to be impactful across the U S um, in ways that 
in ways that, and I use the word sell in, in quotes because it's really not a sell where we don't physically have to be present to get these ideas across some really high level policy changes and some easy steps for teachers and students to be able to, to do. So much of this can be self-led. So while we're in Alexandria currently, and maybe, you know, that's where all of our money stays, I don't know if, I just want to, I want to build and expand this so kids across the U.S., kids across the world can be beneficial from heightened movement. So that's mm. where I see us organizationally. Um, we're going through a, a strategic plan right now, so I don't really know exactly what that looks like, other than yeah. there's no way right. we're going to be scared. Um, in order to make changes because this isn't rocket science, but you know, sometimes it feels like it is rocket science when you're trying to convince people to move more. Mm -hmm. Well, this was, this isn't the last question, but one of the things I thought about was if you had to give somebody a message who, um, is kind of struggling to motivate themselves to move, to exercise, to be physically fit, what would you tell them in order to like, help motivate themselves to just get yeah. going, just get started. Me too. I mean, I had that same thing. I mean, so many times people always assume that, oh, you're really excited that you were going out for a run this morning. I'm like, that's my no, you know? I just know that um, the hardest part is getting your shoes on and your foot out the door and figuring out when your part of the day is. Like some people are morning people, some people are evening people, you know, whatever. And also, you know, having the having a, a co-pilot or having somebody that can you know, join you on this endeavor, so you've got ownership of it, and you know that they're counting on you, you're counting on them. That's a big motivator. Um, and just you know, thinking through, it's like you know, my my plan says I'm supposed to run ten miles, or five miles, or two miles, or I can't, I can't even walk two miles. You know, how do I even get started? You know, it's literally, it's that same thing. It's just getting your shoes on and getting out the door, knowing that's going to be the hardest piece. And then saying to yourself, you know what? I'm going to run to that stop sign. And when I get to that stop sign, I'm going to evaluate how I'm feeling. Can I run to the next stop sign? Do I need to walk to the next next stop sign? And then when I get to that, I might start running again. You know, it's that acceptance of um, some of it's terrible. Some of it hurts. Some of it's no fun. Some of it's like whatever. But I have never come home from a run or finished a race and been like, oh, I'm not glad I did that. Or, boy, what a waste of my time that was. Right. That was. Yeah. It's, it's just, so it's, it's just literally that mindset of, it's like when you get up, you brush your teeth, right? You make your coffee. That's me. I brush my teeth, you know, get my asthma meds, come down, make coffee, you know, take the dog out. You know, feed the cats, and then I know after I feed those cats, I'm washing my hands, and you know I'd already put, you know I'd already put my running clothes on because I bring my running clothes downstairs with me, and as soon as I mean literally I'm making my coffee and making sure my blinds are closed because I'll put my running clothes on in the kitchen because if I it's like anything that's going to hold you up, take it away. Yeah. So I know I bring my yeah. I bring my clothes to it with me to the kitchen. I'm having a cup of coffee. I'm taking a dog out, doing the cat thing. And I know as soon as that's done, I'm going out and I'm going for a run. Mm -hmm. it, whether it's raining, mm -hmm. some of the best runs ever in the rain. 100 degrees, run in the shade. 
run slower, walk, doesn't matter. You know, feeling terrible, just give it a mile, give it a half a mile, yeah. you know, give it to the stop sign and then reevaluate. I really like the, all the, the steps in terms of like bringing the clothes down, make sure the blinds are shut and everything like that. Because I really think that is a lot more important than a lot of people really think. Because I think as with certain habits and forming habits like that and making it part of your making, yeah, making it part of your day, a huge part of it is making it the least path of resistance as possible. And if you have anything that for whatever reason holds you back, takes longer or, or whatever, that's just another reason why maybe you shouldn't exactly. go for that run today. Um, exactly. Anything like that. And I feel like because you do all those things really well and so frequently, you set yourself up for success so well. And I feel like a lot of people set them up, set themselves up for failure so often, not really knowing that right. they do that um, because they're just, they leave so many different paths of right. resistance for themselves. Right. Um, it, it could be, it could be something as simple as like leaving your keys out so they know, you know where they are instead of go and getting ready to walk out the door and be like, Oh, I don't know where my car keys are to go to the gym or go run or whatever. Um, and then you're looking around for five minutes. You're like, ah, oh, maybe well, I shouldn't I, even go. I, I don't have time. Have, I only have you know, 20 minutes now at the gym and you know, what the heck? I, right. I, you know. right. Exactly. Yeah. I think that's so important. Um, before I ask the last question, I want to acknowledge you, Brooke. I think a lot of the times we t- actually we t- you know we talked a lot of uh, talked about it a little bit before we got on too, but I feel like a number of different times maybe without you realizing it you talked about breaking it down into the small things. I think that the biggest way that you, we talked about it was that in order to keep your like consistently good mojo is you got to break it down and realize and see the different kind of wins that you've made along the way. And there were a couple other times too, they're vanishing my, my brain right now in terms of what they were, but you kept coming back to kind of like break it down. It's the stop, go to one stop sign, then go to the next stop sign. Just break it up into the small wins to kind of motivate yourself to take action and to move forward. Um, so I really think it's really cool that you've been able to kind of do that consistently and see that it does play such an important part of your life and keeping a good yeah, consistent yeah, mojo. Yeah. Yeah. And, and also, you know, that one thing that we didn't get to is like, sometimes you just are having a bad day. Like, it's just not my day. Yeah. I'm just being okay with it. It's not mm-hmm. my day. But tomorrow it's my day. Yeah. The day after that, I know it's going to be my day. Um, just believing in that. Mm-hmm. Well, so how, how can we best support you? There's runningbrook.org is, is where people can go and learn more Absolutely. and donate and all that kind of stuff. Is well, there anywhere else? Of course, else? love, um, you know, participation through a donation where, you know, so much of it will go right to the kids, um, to really make a difference and change in their lives. And also the year over the year of the teachers and the, and, you know, the, the trainings and the tools that we provide and they buy through, you know, for, through the donor, um, is to really make these life changes to the, to the kids. So of course that would be amazing donation sponsorships. You know, we have great sponsorships with um, some really good visibility for those that are interested in that. Um, and then just spreading the word. I mean, in becoming a doer yourself, you know, um, figuring out what that, what that thing is you want to do and, you know, think about us and talk about us as part of perhaps, you know, what, what made you do and what made you keep doing. Um, that's the only mm-hmm. way to go. Cool, cool. Well, so the last question that I always ask everybody, um, I think that everybody 
is always on the constant journey of becoming the best version of yourself. I don't know if we're ever at that that best version of ourselves, but I think hopefully on our last day we can think we got close enough. But I also feel like it's a very unique journey. I feel like the way that I'm going to become the best version of myself is going to be different than the way that you're going to become the best version of yourself. So what I want to ask you for you personally is if you could currently work on or do three things to get closer to the best version of yourself, what are those three things that you could currently do or currently work on? I think for me to become my best person, it's really taking a moment to stop and appreciate how far we've come organizationally and how far personally I've grown from um, continuing to take the steps and you know, going through, working through adversity, working through setbacks, and appreciating that it's not always easy. But really thinking through, okay, that wasn't that wasn't the right decision, you know, two years ago or last month or or yesterday. Um, but what did I learn from it? And harnessing the power of being able to appreciate that none of us know everything and we're all on this journey to, um, we're all on this individual journey, like you were saying. Um, appreciate it and also own up to your own path for, so what's right for me, like you're saying, isn't right for you. You know, I, I think about it in terms of my kids. I don't expect the same thing from them that I expect from myself while I'm, they're hard, they're hard enough on themselves. So they don't need me to, you know, um, remind them or be hard on, on them. Um, but also just whatever you're, you know, to appreciate where you are in your life right now. And that's something that I still think that I can grow on and live up to is the appreciation of what life brings you and what you can bring to life and what can happen if those things are pulled together. Yeah, partnerships are cool. They're totally the way to go. Cool. Awesome. Well, that's all we got today, Brooke. I really appreciate you uh, taking the time with me and, and sharing all your story and all, all that great well, knowledge. anytime. Thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. There you have it. Thanks so much for listening to everything Brooke shared today, from her depression early on in her motherhood, her brain aneurysm, her marathon stories, and her idea of embracing the badness. I love that part. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend you think would be inspired by it. Share it with your friend who runs marathons. Share it with a mother who might feel trapped in the same situation Brooke felt. Send it to someone to give them inspiration to get moving and start living a healthier life. And if you're on the Apple Podcast app or on iTunes, leave a quick review and let me know what you liked most about Brooke or what your biggest takeaway was. Remember, take note of the small wins that you make in life. It's nearly impossible to keep a good mojo going all the time if you only focus on your long-term goals. Set benchmarks and checkpoints for yourself to see all the progress that you're making along the way to that big goal. Set yourself up for success in the morning. Find hacks so that you can make those good habits that you want to implement in your life easier to implement by creating a path of least resistance. I hope this episode inspired you to take action in your life, to get moving, to serve others, to be grateful for this life, and most importantly, to start taking action towards getting closer and closer to your best you. you.